Infectious disease has shaped the course of human history, and as the last couple of years remind us, it continues to do so. Today's guest puts the focus on more than just the viruses and bacteria that cause illness. She turns our attention to societal factors like race, gender, and class to understand the anti-science rhetoric and politics that shapes so much of the modern world. She's Vidya Krishnan this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by Vidya Krishnan, an award-winning journalist. She has covered health and science for 20 years, including reporting for The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Times, The Hindu, and The British Medical Journal. Her new book is Phantom Plague, How Tuberculosis Shaped History. She joins us from India. Vidya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, uh, tuberculosis, uh, why write a book about this disease and its history? Um, I did not intend to write the book because it's, it's I feel the same way. <laughs> um, and, but I was uh, reporting for, uh, at that time I was working for the Hindu, and there were a lot of tuberculosis cases in India, which I was reporting on, but, you know, like a journalist with 300, 400 word stories, and it was not enough to capture what uh, what was being done to the society, but also it's an ancient plague, it has its own history, and I just went down a rabbit hole, uh, which initially started as my own uh, reading, but then I just found obscure episodes in medical history, and it kind of came together as a book. Uh, it took me a while to get there, though. So, for an American audience that might not have a lot of familiarity with TB, other than the skin test that they might get if they're if they're traveling overseas, uh, it's rare in the United States, but it is not rare in other parts of the world. Can you talk to us about the prevalence? of tuberculosis globally? Uh, TB is, uh, I, if I'm not wrong, there are 7,000 cases in the US as of last year, but in India, which is where most of the tube, uh, tuberculosis patients live, uh, there were um, millions of cases. I'm getting the number wrong. Uh, there are 10.4 million globally, but out of it, 2 million live in India. And even within this, uh, there is something called drug-resistant TB, where modern antibiotics don't cure this disease anymore. And what's happened is, like we know with uh, COVID, with uh, infectious respiratory diseases, it spreads very quickly in an interconnected world. So that's what's happening. Even though it's prevalent mostly in the global south, um, which is India and South Africa, Philippines, uh, it's spreading slowly and it's one of those, uh, back, it's a pathogen that is slow but it's relentless and uh, because antibiotics don't work anymore, it's more scarier in its current form than it was uh, a century ago. 
So again, for those in our audience who might not be familiar with TB, can you just give us a, a brief overview of the epidemiology, what it does, what the symptoms are, and, and how it's transmitted? And, and the fact that in many cases, without proper treatment, um, it's, it's deadly. Just give us an overview, Vidya. Yeah, thank you for that question. There are actually three popular myths about tuberculosis, that it's a disease of the poor, uh, it's a disease of the past, and that it's curable. And at this point, uh, none of those three things are true. It's uh, not a disease of the poor. It is actively spreading, uh, and it infects anyone who comes in that ambit. Uh, it uh, is not curable any longer because we have these versions of drug-resistant tuberculosis. And what happens uh, with TB, it's a master mutator, the pathogen. It can uh, get into your body and it can wait for months, sometimes years, in some cases even decades, waiting for the body's immunity to fall before the bacteria starts uh, acting up. So globally, what happened is the HIV epidemic of the 90s was uh, a huge springboard for TB because uh, HIV does immunocompression. So the virus suppresses the immunity and the bacteria, TB then uh, just ravages the body. And which is why South Africa, which had a terrible HIV burden, is one of the worst affected uh, countries with uh, tuberculosis. It has a burden second only to India. And uh, it's, it's one of those pathogens um, uh, where uh, it, it spreads, uh, it just thrives in conditions that uh, in countries like India or even in ghettos where people are made to live in uh, houses which are not well ventilated um, and uh, places where, uh, again, uh, the, poor pop, the poorer people don't have access to healthcare and nutrition. So you don't just need medicines to cure the disease, you actually need nutrition and you need uh, clean housing and ventilation. And uh, in, in big cities of the world, which is, which is why the, uh, the book is set between New York and Mumbai uh, in different uh, hundred years apart, but in big mega cities of the world, uh, uh, the pathogen just thrives. So you mentioned New York and Mumbai, and, and we'll get to that in more depth in a moment. But the book opens in Rhode Island. And as you know, we are here in Rhode Island, and it opens in Exeter, Rhode Island, in the late 19th century with Mercy Brown. Uh, I've written about Mercy Brown, as we discussed before, before we did the show. So I, I know that story, and I think a lot of people in Rhode Island know that story. But a lot of people don't know this story. Tell us about Mercy Brown and why, why her case was so important. Well, uh, I, was, uh, I started working on the book in 2016 because of a court case. Uh, and I was just, at that point, just reading all the material that I could lay my hands on. And uh, I still remember sitting in my newsroom, uh, coming across this paper in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, which was about vampire panics, and it was kind of uh, the open sesame for my book, uh, because it's such a, uh, as we said at the start of this conversation, TV is such a difficult conversation to have with someone. It's not a not a sexy disease, and uh, it's it's very difficult to get a reader interested in TV. And here I had a vampire panic, and uh, it was. Like I, I was uh, very happy with the opportunity to mix the fabulous with the mundane, 
which is what uh, the story of Mercy Brown was. Uh, the fact that the fact that uh, you know people could be driven uh, to act in such a way where they are this you know just digging up graves was also um, to me very uh, stark parallel with this is the early years of the coronavirus pandemic, and we were again seeing people behave. Uh, just in panic completely uh, unreasonably in all sorts of ways in india there was a very brutal lockdown but also uh, people when they are when they're scared they behave uh, very weirdly with each other so we had a lot of uh, um, antagonistic behavior from the rich towards the poor so you know we had cases where uh, rich people would ask their staff to change their clothes at the door. And there was all sorts of unscientific and bizarre magical thinking because you know, you're just afraid and what, what you don't understand you fear. And Mercy Brown captures all of it uh, in, in such a, in, in, it's such a beautiful parallel to work with as a writer. I, I felt like I, like I said, I still remember reading that paper years ago and I was like, this is, this is how I'm gonna open the book. We're going to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. You can hear an audio version of this program multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is award-winning journalist Vidya Krishnan. For more than 20 years, she's been reporting on health and science, and her new book, Phantom Plague, traces the history of tuberculosis and the disease's impact on the world, including the danger it poses today. You can follow Vidya on Twitter at Vidya Krishnan, that's V-I-D-Y-A-K-R-I-S-H-N-A-N. Mercy Brown died of tuberculosis and was placed in uh, storage, for lack of a better word, for, because it was during the winter. But she was exhumed, brought out of where she was after her death. And what was observed frightened people and, and really fed into the vampire myth. Talk about that piece of, of the Mercy Brown story. Um, so she, her body had not decomposed because she had been kept in a crypt as was customary uh, during winter and the family was waiting for uh, the, for it to, for the ice to thaw before they could give her a proper burial. And uh, of course, when they went digging up this, this one family had um, many members showing similar symptoms and dying. And uh, uh, back when Mercy Brown was alive, uh, that her neighbors thought of TB not to be uh, contagious, but uh, hereditary. So it ran in the family and three members of uh, the Brown family dying was proof enough. So the villagers decided to dig her up and because uh, her body had not decomposed because of a frigid winter, uh, how, uh, how the village folk interpreted that to mean was that she was crawling out of the grave 
and infecting her brother who was also showing at that point similar symptoms and it had sent the whole village in panic and uh, uh, Exeter wasn't the only place uh, I talk about it in the first chapter of my book how Exeter and Mercy Brown uh, was the most uh, um, uh, publicized case of vampire panic but it wasn't the only one uh, there were many cases and many families who uh, who who uh, could not find a way to explain why young completely healthy people were suddenly dropping dead and uh, I, I'm fascinated by the magical thinking how how we group think and explain away diseases uh, before modern medicine uh, but then again, uh, there is such a beautiful parallel to be made now in the third year of the pandemic. We had we have anti-vaxxers uh, in the US, but also in India. There are so many cases of magical thinking where there is just uh, science denialism. And uh, which, is, which is also why I kind of wanted to talk with, uh, st start talking about this completely out of ordinary um, episode from medical history, because, uh, you know, the, the weird and obscure and bizarre uh, episodes of our past are actually a very good mirror to see what we are doing even today in across the world. Uh, the US has its own version of anti-vaxxers and science denialism. And in India, our government has been uh, uh, peddling uh, yoga as a cure for coronavirus. Uh, and we keep repeating these mistakes, and which is actually why I wanted to center this story before we uh, went deeper into the conversation. When did you start uh, writing, researching and writing uh, uh, Phantom Plague? I, I started reporting on it uh, in 2014 uh, for newspapers. And I, it initially began, Phantom Plague initially began as a long-form essay for Caravan magazine, mm -hmm. who, who it's a brilliant Indian magazine that I write for. But at some point, uh, because I was reading all sorts of uh, history and, you know, uh, global politics, uh, I had like 25,000 words and I did not want to commit to the book at that point because I was reporting on the Rohingya crisis in Bangladesh at that point. And at some point, my friends just sat me down and had an intervention and said that <laughs> I need to stop talking about TB over dinner and start typing. Well, and, uh, we just... You know, I, I ask because the, the implications that you draw in the book and, and, and obviously in a conversation here and also in some of the other reporting that I've seen you do in various outlets really draws a distinction or a comparison between our experience in the pandemic and the historic experience with with tuberculosis. Would the book have been different, you think, if we had not had this experience of the last few years? Um, you know, I wrote the first draft of the book uh, in uh, May 2019. And unfortunately, I did not have to change my editors uh, when the pandemic hit and then we went into lockdown uh, in India in uh, March. And we had a conversation with my publishers at uh, Hachette and we decided not to a, include coronavirus in the book just for this reason, because we keep making the same mistakes. And unfortunately, even down to the final chapters of the book, uh, which focuses on access to medicine, we did not have to change a lot because um, 
uh, I feel like uh, our politicians and global health institutions have been very reliably and very predictably um, biased when confronted with a pathogen that's mutating and that's evolving and thriving. Uh, we have a health system that is not nimble footed. And then it's also anchored down by our own racial biases and scientific biases. And uh, we decided not to include uh, COVID in the book. But with that distance, this question almost always is brought up in my interviews that, the, that COVID is not mentioned in the book, but everything that applies uh, that I talk about, not just applies to COVID, but also applies to HIV. So we keep repeating the same mistakes. Uh. Well, one I noted in uh, a piece that you wrote for Neiman Reports at Harvard, and I'm going to quote it here. Uh, you wrote, Phantom Plague started a conversation about the role of race, gender, and caste in perpetuating plagues. As we grapple with the pandemic, we can no longer ignore the suffering wrought by a global approach to health that doesn't care for the most vulnerable among us. Everyone deserves access to safe and humane health care. We could spend an entire episode, probably several episodes, just unpacking that one paragraph. But in the case of tuberculosis, how have race, gender, and caste affected the, the perpetuation of that disease? So thank you for that question. With caste, again, it's such a beautiful parallel. I consider it a privilege to, uh, I live between the US and India. And uh, in the US, uh, you th there is more literature that documents health deficits and refugees and immigrants and African-American communities, uh, starting from maternal mortality, but also in COVID, uh, uh, these communities have been disproportionately affected. And that's exactly uh, uh, just so perfectly uh, true for lower caste communities in India who work uh, menial jobs and uh, don't have access to information or internet or legal aid or schools. And uh, they are also ghettoized. So they don't have access to uh, his, you know, a housing which allows uh, ventilated housing or parks uh, for children to play in. And uh, uh, so the, the caste aspect, the caste and race aspect, of course, uh, what it does is uh, uh, takes the vulnerable communities and uh, just uh, squishes them in a small landmass. And Mumbai is a perfect example of it. But it happens around the world. Uh, in the US, uh, in, the, in the book, I compare uh, the situation of uh, uh, slums in India to the Chicago housing projects. Um, but uh, the next portion of it was, uh, it's just become impossible to talk about infectious diseases without talking about race and racial discrimination because uh, global health organizations, which is the WHO and the WTO, uh, the Gates Foundation, they're all based in the global north. And over and over and over again with HIV, but with also TB, what we see now is um, as uh, antibiotics uh, uh, become less and less effective, uh, with TB, what they're doing is Indian patients who are profiled in the book don't have access to newer therapies because these therapies are under patent monopolies. And essentially, uh, and they are all taxpayer invested. So the R&D uh, was initially by American taxpayers. The NIH invested in uh, new TB medicines, much the same way as we see with COVID technologies as well. But they're not available uh, to the places where the disease are the most. So uh, post-colonial black and brown nations in Asia and Africa have the most infectious diseases. 
but what we do is wall them in and uh, we save the medicines for if the what happens if uh, drug resistant TB infects uh, patients in the US or in Europe. And a perfect example of this was Ebola. Uh, Ebola had been spreading in uh, African, West African nations forever. And I happened to be in Seattle when there was a nurse who'd come back uh, and uh, she was infected. And very quickly we arrived at solutions. And it kind of, the book kind of forces a conversation about the moral core of an argument that basically legislates medicines the same way we talk about iPhones or refrigerators. And it's no longer tenable because uh, as again, as COVID has shown, if uh, infectious diseases, especially respiratory infectious diseases are spreading, it doesn't matter that they are ricocheting in India or in Mumbai for now. The world is connected. I mean, you know, Indian diaspora lives everywhere and airports uh, are taking these diseases very quickly everywhere. So we kind of, I hope the reader takes away from the book this conversation about uh, how we regulate our medicine does not suit uh, the, the demands of the global health, uh, you know, the, the insecurities that we face globally. Uh, and we are also facing cl climate change now. Uh, they will not be solved by us being myopic and greedy and trying to save medicines when what we need is to share medicines. Vijay, that, that was really, really well put. Um, and, and obviously we agree. You use a term and you write about a term, the toxic, toxic kindness of philanthropists in your book. And, and that, that has stuck in my head. Can you break that down for us? It, it, it sounds, well, it doesn't sound like, it's a hindrance to the cause. And, you know, we think of philanthropy as always doing good and there's really no downside to it, but that isn't necessarily true. So if you could break that, that phrase down for us, that would be great. Uh, thank you for that question again. Uh, so uh, philanthropy, one of the things I really want the reader to think about the book is how we cannot solve our problems in global health with charity. But more importantly, Asian and African countries are not asking for charity. Everything we know about medicine, we know from experimentation on colonial subjects in the US, it, we know about medicine from experiments on slaves. So, so we can't look at medicine as something that belongs to the Western world because they are genius. And uh, with philanthropy, the problem essentially is that uh, it's, it's uh, I'm quoting Chinua Achibye, the Nigerian poet and author who says that charity is, is the opium of the rich. And that's where we are with Gates Foundation. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news around the second wave in India. India was devastated by second wave and India is the Gates Foundation's largest laboratory. And it begets this question, where is all that money going that Gates Foundation is throwing in, into India uh, instead of, um, you know, uh, instead of uh, equipping Indian, uh, Indian structures, uh, instead of passing the mic, uh, philanthropic organizations speak for the nations. So there is this conversation in Go Global Health about talking about uh, plagues uh, in uh, uh, tropical regions and post-colonial nations mostly as uh, not overcomable because they don't listen to us. But the problem here is not, uh, you, know, you know, the whole point of tropical medicine within global health uh, emerged as a research subject 
uh, when medicine became a tool of colonial expansion. And uh, I, I, it's a long-winded way to come back to charity. Charity essentially enforces the same um, the same unequal power symmetry. Uh, even as we speak, uh, with COVID, uh, there have been donations for COVID vaccines, but most of African nations have received these donations, especially from US and Canada. None of them are mRNA vaccines. Many of these donations reach the Asian nations when they are close to expiry. And none of it actually even has the interest of protecting the health of the most precious assets of our country, which is our, our people. Um, and black and brown people, again, are disproportionately uh, uh, affected by this. I personally believe that we do have a very toxic situation with uh, philanthropy, uh, just, uh, you know, just reinforcing and perpetuating plagues because it's never enough. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, I, in, a, in a pandemic or, it, the tuberculosis is also a pandemic. It's spread around the world. We just don't use that word. In a pandemic, what we need is decentralized vaccine supplies. But what we have is a situation where Geneva, WHO, uh, has control of uh, uh, COVAX facilities. So India manufactures the bulk of the vaccine and ships it to Geneva, which then decides how much goes to Africa and Asia. And this, it's like, you know, your house is on fire and you have a centralized water supply. And we wouldn't do it uh, if we valued black and brown lives the same way. And that's that's the core of why philanthropy is a problem. You know, Vidya, we've got about two minutes left here, but it seems like what you're talking about is really an issue of justice. And so, you know, I think we're all familiar now with the idea of, of social justice and even environmental justice, but this seems to be an issue of health justice. Is, is, that, is that valid? Absolutely. Um, I recently wrote for Boston Globe where I said that in a world where uh, pandemics are the norm, uh, the fight for our uh, medical rights uh, is the civil liberties, uh, uh, just is the fight of our lifetime for the 21st century, because disease after disease we are seeing that uh, erstwhile, so now we don't have colonial, like India was ruled by Britain, but we don't have, uh, you know, empires now. Modern day empires are big pharma, big philanthropy and big tech. And between the three, big tech saw so much uh, misinformation spread during the pandemic. Big pharma has made money hand over fist uh, in billions of dollars as people have died. And big philanthropy has, uh, just a, uh, undergirded the situation. And unless we uh, go back to the structural root of these problems, we are going to be stuck in these uh, parallel forever pandemics. Uh, your part of the world has a different pandemic and my part of the world also has a different pandemic right now. Uh, Vidya, we've got literally about 15 seconds. You know, what's the prospect for uh, folks living with uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis. Is that a death sentence? Uh, no, I want to be optimistic because there are medicines. This is a preventable, curable illness. Uh, this does not need to be a death sentence exactly the same way as COVID. Now a vaccine-preventable disease does not need to be. Uh, we just need to get to a point where uh, the wealthy countries are willing to share the technology or allow Asia and Africa to buy the technology. Uh, this uh, gridlock over vaccine has to end. 
Well, Vidya, this is a hugely important conversation. We're so grateful for you for joining us today. The book is Phantom Plague. It's an important read. That is all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>